Hello, and welcome to Pull Quotes, a podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Emily Pardo. And I'm Laura Howells. Thanks for joining us. I feel, I feel pretty strongly that, um, that New York Times journalists cannot, should not be able to say anything on social media that they cannot say either in the pages or in any of the platforms of the New York Times. Good luck I with that. Str- I, I know, but I've... That's Dean Bacay, executive editor at the New York Times. There's often a difference between what journalists will say on Twitter and what they'd write in a news article. But at the New York Times, updated social media guidelines say reporters need to stay objective and neutral online. We'll talk to the Times social media editor and critics who say trying to appear objective isn't the right objective. After that, stock photos that don't click. Quebec's Bill 62, the ban on facial coverings, was widely seen as an attack on Muslim women. There were a lot of stories about the bill that used a lot of photos of nameless women wearing niqabs. They might be easy to find, but our guest says that these kind of photos have destructive consequences. You're listening to Poll Quotes. Thanks for joining us. At a recent New York Times panel, executive editor Dean Bacay expressed concerns about how some journalists use Twitter. I've spent full days policing our social media. I've spent weekends. So you'll call reporters and be like, what are you doing? I've called reporters. I've sent notes to reporters. Um, And I think it's it's difficult, but it shouldn't be as difficult. Here's my my view, and I feel strongly and will continue to push it. Um, We do, we are doing extraordinarily aggressive reporting about this administration. Partly because it's a transformational administration, partly because it's raising questions we've never contemplated before, from a president who continues to do some business in his office to a a White House that looks like, unlike any other White House. If I'm gonna do that, if the New York Times is gonna do that, I need to have the rest of my house in order which means I need to be able to say, and the two of them need to be able to say to the world, we're doing this because it's journalistically sound, we're not doing this because we have a vendetta, we're trying to take him out, and I can't do that if I have 100 people working for the New York Times sending inappropriate tweets. I know this is, this is not just an issue for the New York Times, this is an issue for the media in general, and we're gonna, we're gonna come up with a tougher policy, um, but it's just really important. It's, I know it's hard for people because we are in a moment, I'm trying to think what it would have been like to, to run a newspaper during the Civil Rights Movement or during the Vietnam War when you had, a, you know, look, newspaper staffs are human beings. Right. I mean, they're made up of people who are human. And the temptation, whether they're from the left or the right, to jump into debates is a very powerful temptation in America. Um, but, but I have to make the staff resist that in order to be able to look everybody in the eye and say these two people are doing their work objectively and clearly. Well, the next day, the New York Times published an updated and expanded set of social media guidelines. The guidelines cover a lot of ground, but one of the main takeaways is that New York Times journalists should always be neutral when they're posting online. They can't express partisan opinions or political views, and they can't appear to take sides on issues the New York Times covers. These rules apply to all journalists in the New York Times newsroom, even those who don't cover the White House. Later that week, the Wall Street Journal also reminded its staff not to make partisan comments on social networking sites and suggested that some staff are spending too much time tweeting. But critics say that cracking down on social media isn't the right move. 
Most readers are already convinced that publications have certain political slants, regardless of what reporters might tweet. And restrictions on social media could make it harder for journalists to effectively engage with their audiences, something news organizations increasingly expect their staff to do. Here's Matthew Ingram with the Columbia Journalism Review. I think personally that it, it's far better for journalists to be upfront about the things that they believe or the viewpoints that they have or the perspective that they come from. I think that builds trust with readers. I don't think sort of pretending that your journalists have no opinion on the issues of the day is, is really a, a tenable position at this point. If your media outlet is depending more and more on subscriptions or membership or, or donations or whatever, you need to build relationships with your readers. And one way to do that is through social media. And you can't do it if you effectively handcuff your journalists and prevent them from talking honestly or openly about things on Twitter. Well, one of the people who helped develop the New York Times' new social media guidelines is Cynthia Collins. She's the social media editor at the paper, and she spoke to us on the phone from New York. Cynthia, the New York Times executive editor has talked about having to police reporters on social media. Were there specific incidents that prompted the Times to introduce a stricter social media policy? Yeah, I think at first I'd just like to start off with, you know, really reinforcing the main goal of these updated guidelines and, and the main impetus behind them. And it's that we believe so strongly in the power of social media. It plays an absolutely vital role in our journalism and the voices of our readers, listeners, and viewers. They're infusing, informing, improving every aspect of our reporting every day. Um, you know, it's just a really powerful testament if you look, you know, at what continues to happen, you know, in the wake of our Harvey Weinstein investigation, you know, with the Me Too hashtag, that conversation that that's been developing. And you know, you continue to have women working inside Hollywood, outside of Hollywood, coming forward, sharing their own personal stories of sexual harassment, assault, and rape. And these are incredibly powerful stories that, that absolutely go into improving our own line of reporting. Um, so I just really want to reinforce how important it is for us. And that's why, you know, we're really taking it so seriously and ensuring that all of our journalists here have the proper support to know how to act responsibly on social media. So so why now? I mean, are, are there any examples or, or incidents that, that prompted this change? No, it's really, you know, it's, it's, and even the use of your word, I think you, I think you used the word stricter earlier. Um, they're really, they're really updated. You know, these guidelines, there's not much new here. They're the same guidelines that have been informing what we do for years. You know, they're rooted in our ethical journalism guidelines that have been around for decades, you know, basically the, the tenets of what upholds our journalism since our founding, you know, it's, it's the same principles really do apply. Um, so what we really wanted to do in this case was to help just make these guidelines come to life in a way. And we did that with reaching out and engaging, obviously, the people who know this the best, you know, some of our most prominent reporters who are on social media and are so actively engaging with with people on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And we wanted to include their voices in these guidelines. So we thought by including their voices, that would really illustrate and make it much more tangible how these guidelines should be applied to our day-to-day lives as journalists for The New York Times. I mean, why, why emphasize this idea of not expressing any partisan opinions or, or you know, not appearing to take sides and, and, and make this so broad to the entire newsroom? Yeah, I mean, we, we strongly believe that if 
any single journalist is perceived as being biased or engaging in editorializing on social media, maybe makes a careless tweet, that that can undercut our entire newsroom's credibility. And that's something that we believe quite strongly in, that we need to protect and we need to ensure. And um, all practices in the newsroom should should be keeping that in mind at all times. These new guidelines really emphasize and hammer home this idea that journalists should always appear objective and neutral. Um, but some critics argue that this idea of, of true objectivity is, is impossible to achieve. Journalists come uh, with their own set of experiences and perspectives, and that these guidelines just make for less transparent journalism. What do you say to that? Yeah, I would I would disagree with that. I would think um, really the the essence of why we're doing this is is in in the service of transparency. Um, and again, you know, we're really trying to encourage journalists to do this in a responsible way. And you know, we fully support experiments with voice. And we recognize, of course, social media is a different platform than you know what would appear in A1 on print and you know, there, there's some flexibility there. And these, these guidelines are not etched in stone. They're a living, breathing document. As we, as we would respond to any event in the news and how we cover it across the time, those same discussions, those same um, debates are going to inform our approach on social. So it's, it's difficult to draw, you know, a really solid line here that says, you know, if you're on this side, you know you're in violation. If you're on this side, you're okay. That's not that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're trying to achieve here. We're really just trying to start a conversation and just be much more open about it, and and to you know push back when we think, you know, we need we need to to maybe experiment a little bit more and and be comfortable with different ways of of reporting out our journalism um, every day. You said this is an encouraging transparency. Um, what do you mean by that? I believe that these guidelines provide essentially a reminder of what the core principles that dictate New York Times journalism are and should be followed. And by opening it up in the way we did, by you know publishing them on our site, we are being very clear with our readers as to you know what our mission is. I think that's becoming more transparent. And, you know, I really applaud that. And I think, I think also, you know, we see it every day. I mean, I, you can point to countless examples of times journalists pulling back the curtain on social media into the reporting process. You know, you, you see examples of journalists just personalizing the story a little bit more for our readers and for folks on social. You see um, reporters sharing photos and, and moments from their reporting experience in real time on social. And that's, that's becoming far more transparent than we ever were in the pursuit of journalism. The New York Times has always valued being fair and, and balanced in its reporting. Um, but we're in a very unique political climate, to say the least. And statements that might seem partisan uh, might actually be demonstrably true. For example, you know, reporting that the president lied. And at the same time, Donald Trump often calls fair and accurate reporting biased or fake. So where is the line for what your journalists can express? I mean, when reporting facts can be considered a partisan act, what constitutes a political opinion? Again, I mean, I'm just going to point back to what I said earlier. You know, 
this is this is hard stuff. You know, the line isn't always clearly visible, but we believe the same principles that we've upheld for years, you know, these are the principles we're upholding on social media. So, you know, the same discussions that we're having in the 930 news meeting every morning um, as desks, you know, work through their day of reporting, you know, these are the discussions that will be influencing how we present our news on social media. When people follow journalists on Twitter, it's often because they want to hear their unique voice and their unique perspective. And one of the benefits of social media, as as you mentioned, is that it can encourage audience engagement and, and it can really humanize journalists. If journalists are more restricted in expressing themselves on this platform, do you anticipate this could impact their ability to foster trust and, and foster audience engagement? I don't. I think, you know, again, you know, we have hundreds of journalists in this newsroom who have been fostering deeply committed relationships with with readers and with sources on social media, and that's going to continue. And because of how engaging some of our journalists are on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and how open they are, you know, that that fosters a deeper connection and a deeper trust in, in that reporter's work. And I think that's, you know, a really beautiful and promising thing, and that's something, again, we're going to continue to encourage. There's plenty of personality and there's plenty of personal opinions that infuse what our journalists are doing every day. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to a tweet last week that Jeffrey Gettleman wrote about reporting on Rohingya, and he said that after he reported this story, he called his wife and he said it was the hardest interview he ever, he ever wrote, he ever worked on. And that level of emotion and that level of just sort of separating yourself from a story for a moment and recognizing that we're all humans and we all have lives outside of our work. I mean, that's, that's a really powerful moment. You look at, you know, what Jody Canner and Megan Tui have been doing on, on social in terms of, you know, sharing their work again on the Harvey Weinstein reporting, the same sort of emotion and, and transparency and just sort of pulling the curtain back a little bit. You know, we see, we see that all the time and, and that will most, most assuredly continue. That was Cynthia Collins, social media editor with the New York Times. As we mentioned earlier, critics are skeptical about the merits of reporters trying to appear neutral on social media. David Uberti recently wrote a piece for Splinter News calling the New York Times social media policy a surrender to its worst critics. Here's David on the phone from New York. I mean, there are plenty of issues to dig into with this particular policy. But I mean, reading through it, and it's a pretty in-depth document, so I give the Times editors props for being so transparent about it. But reading through it just... It's hard for me to imagine or understand who exactly they're trying to appease with these rules. New York Times is arguably the most important news organization in the country. It drives discussion unlike no other, and it has some very dedicated readers. Uh, The other flip side of that is by virtue of it being such an influential paper, it is also heavily criticized. So reading through these social media policies, it's hard for me to sort of envision who exactly they're trying to appease, whether that's the people who actually care about the newspaper, who have a connection with the newspaper, who get journalism from the newspaper, whether it's trying to make a covenant with those people, or whether it's trying to appease a lot of its critics who are in many cases uh, acting in bad faith. And this is particularly true in the Trump era, when the newspaper has done some of the most hard-hitting accountability reporting against President Trump and his administration, it has also spawned a, you know, a legion of New York Times haters among Trump supporters. So it just, it, it's, you know, perplexing to me of, of why, you know, you would try to appease those people when they can't be convinced, as opposed to trying to 
cater to your audience who, you know, care about the journalism you produce every day. I mean, you call the new rules a, a response to bad faith critics. What, what exactly do you mean by that? There are hundreds, if not thousands, of vocal New York Times critics on the Internet. But if we want to just choose one of them by way of an example uh, to sort of flesh out what this means, I, I would guess I would just point to President Donald Trump, uh, who is probably the most vocal New York Times critic in the world and at least has the most the most reach of any of the critics. Uh, Donald Trump, when he criticizes the New York Times, does so because they are producing journalism that makes him look bad. When they produce journalism that makes him look good, he will just as quickly, you know, share that journalism. Uh, you know, if the economy is doing well, if there are more jobs being created, Donald Trump will share that. He will tweet it out. Uh, but when he sees journalism that doesn't suit his particular political needs at the moment, he criticizes the Times. He calls it fake news. He calls out their individual journalists and whatnot. So what exactly is his underlying critique? Is it that, you know, the Times uh, is a flawed journalistic institution? Or is it just that, you know, the Times is producing true journalism that makes Donald Trump look bad? That seems to me sort of the definition of a bad faith criticism. And I, I don't know if there's anything the New York Times could do, institutionally speaking, or on the individual level of reporters that will actually, you know, make Trump back off other than bending the knee, as I say in the, in the piece, and sort of swearing fealty to our great and fearless leader. Right. But I mean, the New York Times is essentially seems to be sort of under attack by the Trump administration. And the New York Times executive editor says that essentially the organization needs to be bulletproof if they want to do this kind of aggressive reporting about the Trump administration. I mean, do you not think that tweeting opinions or political statements or anything of that sort leaves the Times vulnerable to criticism or, or being discredited in a way that it, it doesn't need to be? Sure. Well, I think there are a couple of things here. One is that for a lot of critics of the New York Times, they're consuming New York Times journalists in a dis disingenuous fashion. If you are to evaluate the New York Times, if, if you're trying to make a value judgment on whether it's journalism is good or bad, and you are pinpointing particular tweets reporters make that are supposedly partisan or supposedly negative toward the guy that you like who's in charge, I think that is a disingenuous way to look look at the massive body of work that New York Times reporters produce day in and day out, and they have for you know more than 150 years. And anyone can do that. Anyone can sort of comb through you know Twitter feeds, and as you and I know, sort of you know what goes on people's Twitter feeds, essentially passing thoughts. There are 140 character little messages. Sometimes they're jokes. Sometimes they're bad jokes. Um, and I don't think that we can legitimately evaluate institution, a journalism institution by, you know, particular bad tweets that those reporters produce. I just don't I just don't think it's a fair way of saying whether the Times is or is not out to get Donald Trump. Now, I am of the opinion that the Times is a liberal newspaper. I think it's pretty that's pretty clear. Uh, it's been out there. And I would argue that it would behoove the Times to just openly embrace that. I think in many cases in this social media policy is a piece of this sort of this idea that it's, that it's journalists can, you know, suppress political opinions or suppress bad thoughts to the extent that they will appear objective or appear neutral. I just think that's going to lead to reporters doing self-censorship. And I think it's going to ultimately lead, lead you to being open to more criticism from bad faith critics who hold you to the standard that is, you know, frankly impossible. Right. Well, I mean, this idea of objectivity is really valued in journalism. But there's also this idea that, you know, no no human being is actually objective. Um, and right. 
if reporters are open about their biases and, and their perspectives, then there's perhaps more transparency in how they're doing their journalism. Do you think there's any value in trying to appear objective? Or, I mean, do you think readers should know all the biases and all the opinions and all the perspectives of the writers that they're reading? I think, generally speaking, seeking the appearance of objectivity is a non-starter, and I think it's probably a net negative. I, as a news consumer, would prefer to know more about individual reporters and where they're coming from and where their sort of um, you know, internal biases or prejudices are. Um, but I think, and this is a difficult needle to thread, and this is sort of the broader question facing journalism right now, is how do we get past the 20th century idea of objectivity, of having to play it down the middle, uh, of being neutral, of you know doing sort of, quote unquote, both sides journalism, he said, he, she said, get past that, but at the same time, keep the, the processes that you know led people to seek objectivity. I think fairness as a process, as a journalistic process, is incredibly valuable. And that's really what I would argue the New York Times should be striving for. And I think those the reporters do strive for it. They try to evaluate all the data. They try to evaluate all the information that's available to them. And, you know, by and large, they do a pretty, pretty good job of that. They're a pretty great newspaper. They do great accountability reporting. You know, they just brought down one of the most powerful men in Hollywood for, you know, insane sexual misconduct allegations. You know, I, I think taking the processes that people have been using in journalism for years and have not failed us, and, you know, focusing on that as opposed to the end goal of appearing objective or appearing neutral, I would definitely take the former as opposed to the latter. Right. But I, I guess the question becomes, where do you draw the line? I mean, isn't there something to be said for reporters exercising restraint in, in just how much they're divulging? Or? I mean, sure. I mean, I, I guess I'd, if I if I could uh, throw it back at you, what does objective journalism about Donald Trump look like? It's, a, it's an insane question to answer, because, I mean, we have a guy in office who's doing things that have not happened in the United States forever. He does things that consistently and accurately be, be described as racist or sexist. He consistently lies. He is chronically unable to tell the truth. All those things sound partisan. They sound subjective, when in reality they are safely factual statements. So I guess I'm concerned about putting the appearance of objectivity before accurately describing what this guy is doing. And I, I think, you know, in some ways, if we you know, fall back on the old language of trying to play it down the middle, or at least look like we're playing down the middle, we're going to, you know, use language that doesn't correctly describe what he's doing. We're going to, I hate this term, but we're going to normalize the guy. I mean, so I, so I think it's, you know, you're right. It's like a really difficult line to tiptoe around. Uh, but I, I think American journalists, at least, are, are really wary about appearing objective. And I think that sort of, you know, misplaces where our attention should be. In your article, you argue that valuing objectivity uh, on social media could disproportionately affect women and people of color. Why do you say that? The parameters of what is acceptable political, political speech, quote unquote, what is or is not considered a, quote, political opinion really depends on who is setting that rule. Um, and overwhelmingly, journalism is dominated by white men. So white men are overwhelmingly setting those rules. Obviously, The New York Times has the executive of Dean Baquet, who is an African-American, but it's managerial sort of class. It's over overwhelmingly white guys. And I think that sort of distorts, you know, your values as an organization. I think it's inherent that it changes what exactly you value or what you devalue. So I think a good example, which just came a couple of weeks ago, is Jamil Hill at ESPN. ESPN 
a huge organization in the United States is overwhelmingly directed by white men. It has a social media policy created by sort of its management and enforced by an internal ombudsman who is, an, who is also a middle-aged white guy. And they essentially publicly condemned the tweets of one of their employees, Jamil Hill, for calling Donald Trump a white supremacist. Now, I, th- I think you can make the argument, and this is backed up through you know years or decades of Donald Trump's actions, that Donald Trump is a white supremacist. You could describe some of his actions as white supremacy. You could describe some of his actions as racist. But I think it's worth pondering. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to, to wade through, but it's worth pondering You know, if a woman or a person of color had come up with these rules of what's acceptable political speech or unacceptable political speech, would Jameel Hill be reprimanded? I think it's an open question. I think it's it's a very difficult one. And I think that's sort of the broader thing that we need to collectively address of, of who's actually making and enforcing these rules. So in your opinion, how should newsrooms be thinking about social media in this kind of political climate? I mean, it's not something that I would relish uh, having to deal with. I think that, generally speaking, it's going to be near impossible to devise an institutional policy to actually regulate the way your employees use social media. The New York Times has something like 1,200 journalists in its newsroom. It seems to me almost insurmountable to police all those people and police their speech. And it's an open question of where that policing ends. So, I mean, I think, generally speaking, People do step over the line. You need to know where that line is and punish them for it. But generally speaking, I think a better way to tackle this is is a more structural and a more difficult way of tackling it, which is that actually construct a newsroom that is diverse, whether that's economically diverse, politically diverse, racially diverse, uh, diverse in terms of gender, and then allow that newsroom to be adult on social media. I think a lot of the flack that the New York Times gets is because there's an overwhelming liberal slant uh, from its writers on social media. And it is true that most of the people who work at the New York Times, they live in New York, and New Yorkers tend to be more liberal than not. So I think, you know, if you were to actually, you know, mix up your staff a little bit, I think that would, that would, that would probably have a greater overall impact over time. I mean, I, I certainly think the reporters generally should be better on social media. I think journalists should be better in every situation. Uh, but I, I don't know... Uh, if a sort of top-down regulation for management of different news organizations is the best way to handle that. There are no social media policies at my organization, um, but I'm sure it's, it's one of these situations where probably my editor would know it if she saw it. If I stepped over a line you know, that she sort of held internally, she would let me know about that, um, which I think is probably the more prudent way to do it than sort of to provide a 1,600-word list publicly to allow people to sort of pick apart your employees' social media feeds, which I, which I think is going to be the end result of this. That was David Uberti in New York City. Last week, Quebec's National Assembly passed Bill 62. It forbids people from giving or receiving government services with their faces covered. Asma Malik is a professor of journalism at Ryerson University. And looking at media coverage of this bill, she was bothered by images news organizations were using to illustrate the story. Asma, what concerned you about the photos you saw in the coverage of Bill 62? So I was obviously reading a lot of stories about um, the passage of Bill 62 and getting increasingly frustrated. 
But aside from that, on Facebook, um, a friend of mine made the observation that she was reading a story in the Star about Bill 62, and she looked at the photo, and it had an Associated Press credit, as a photo credit. And so she went back into Google and found that that image was actually from, um, the image which was of two women wearing niqab was actually from Austria, not from Quebec. And so on Facebook, she posed the question, well, why, you know, why would this photo be used to illustrate a Quebec story? And so I thought that was a very good question. And, and sort of taking that sort of question from her, I went and I looked at other stories that appeared about Bill 62. I, I would say I was surprised but not shocked by what I found. Um, I looked at three different publications. I looked at the star and the specific piece, the piece that Peggy was talking about. Um, the second thing I looked at was a piece uh, in, the, in setting up the vote on Bill 62 from um, the CBC. And in that one, they used a picture of Zunera Ishaq, um, the woman who successfully challenged the ban on wearing niqab during citizenship ceremonies. Um, and they identified her in the cut line, but she's from Ontario. Um, and the story was very much about the Quebec bill. And she was identified in the cut line, but she was not mentioned in the story. And um, that was troubling to me because I felt like she was being used as a symbol for you know women in niqab um, and was you know unfairly being used in a story that had nothing to do with her. It had everything to do with the Quebec ban. And you know when I was actually when I when you think about it, it's like if you can't find an image of a specific person who's affected by this story, that should give you pause. Like so, what are the how many women are we talking about? What how far have have the you know how far is this politicization of women's bodies gone to the point where you can't actually identify a person who is actually affected by it um and la presse the other the other example that i um that i posted the picture was is of a woman wearing a niqab um you don't know where she is she could be anywhere um, later um someone did tweet at me that that photo is was taken in quebec but as a reader I would not have any idea of that because the caption was very vague. So my concern is that women uh, and women's bodies are being used as symbols. And I, th I think the very fact that if, if you have to illustrate a story about a Quebec bill and use an image from Austria, well, ask yourself why, and then ask yourself what you're doing to perpetuate a stereotype. I think the, the issue is that you're not naming the person. You know, as journalists, we take great care in being accurate in our stories. So why aren't we being accurate in our images? You know, one of the photos that um, I, I pointed out, the La Presse photo, was like, the, I think it's been used for at least two years. Like, it's, it's been around for a while. Um, you reinforce an image that is, you know, it's almost like a boogeyman it's not a real person and i think you play into propaganda when you don't identify people and give them you know give them what they deserve i mean it was funny i said like i had posed this question on twitter like why are we using photos from elsewhere and i did get like hit with a few trolls who were like well because muslim women you know aren't allowed to have their photos taken and you know th this perpetuates that stereotype basically or that idea that you know, Muslim women are voiceless, are faceless, are, you, you know, their identities don't matter. And I think part of that, I mean, this comes from pressures on the industry to get rid of photographers, rely more on wire services. Cost is definitely a factor. 
People who are on digital desks are usually handling multiple stories at the same time, trying to keep up with things. But I think this is part of a bigger problem of this idea of um, journalism, this idea of things that get used and reused over and over again. And it's deeply unfortunate that the impact of doing this with pictures of people is that you keep targeting them and stigmatizing them over and over again. Have you seen other instances of stock photography or file photos perpetuating other racial stereotypes or upholding certain norms? Yes, I think this is like it's a pervasive problem. It's obviously not just with this issue of niqab. You know, when we talk about uh, reporting on indigenous stories, often we see images of indigenous people in headdresses or people drumming and um these are, you know, these are stereotypes that get perpetuated and reinforce certain ideas that people have about indigenous people. You know, when we focus on, um, you know, I, I remember in one of the newspapers I worked at, there was a story about, um, you know, Jewish communities in the city, and the photo used to illustrate it was of um, of a Hasidic man, and so people were like, "Well, no, you're perpetuating a stereotype." Rightly so, they said you're perpetuating a stereotype. You know that uh, Hasidic people are, you know, represent all Jewish people. So I think, you know, I think you run into a lot of problems when you don't, when you're not specific in your in your photos. When you just choose something to represent a larger group, you're all you're making a decision. Like you might think you're just putting in a placeholder image, but actually you're making a very conscious decision, like an unconscious decision that has a very conscious effect on your audience. So with digital editors on tight deadlines and fewer reporters getting to leave the newsroom, what would be the solution here? I think we you know, do a lot in training journalists when it comes to covering stories and getting facts, talking to people, getting people on the record. But I think we need to, if we're paying more attention to visuals in our journalism, and, and we definitely are digitally, then we need to um, we need to make sure that journalists are trained in actually understanding visual language. And I don't think we do that. Ozma Malik is a professor of journalism at Ryerson University. And one minor correction, the Associated Press photo that Asma talks about was actually shot in Germany, not Austria. Well, that's our show for this week. Pull Quotes is produced by Emily Pardo, Jacob McNair, and me, Laura Howells. Technical assistance by Angela Glover. Our executive producers are Sonia Fada and Stephen Tromper. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. Check out our website at rrj.ca. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week. Music